Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 3rd, 2019. The share ID numbers for Friday, February the 1st, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,491. That's 12491. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,492. That's 12492. This morning, A Vision for You presents... Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism. The big book teaches us we have a twofold illness, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book teaches us that we have a problem worse than that. The big book says it's our main problem. We've got a mental problem. We've got a problem with our minds. Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, teaches and illustrates the mental bedlam that goes on before the first drink. With us today to bring Chapter 3 to life are three recovered compulsive overeaters. We have panelist number one, John Kay from California, Panelist number two, Penny L.C. from the state of Washington, and panelist number three, Du L. from New York. So let's get started. Page 30 is where we're at in our text with panelist number one. Thank you, Leah. My name is John Kieran, recovered compulsive overeater from Los Angeles. Um, you know, the thing I like most about more about alcoholism is how perfectly it describes those bizarre behaviors they're involved with addiction. As far as I know, up until then, nobody previously put this kind of thing down in writing. And, you know, even if they had, you know, chances are it would have come from an outsider, you know, a non-alcoholic who could only talk about the, these behaviors as an observer. But here, we're told not only what the sufferers did, but how they felt and thought. If a person reading this is truly affected by a substance, they could feel those feelings identify with them, chances are this book is also probably telling the reader how she or he themselves felt. You know, so this morning I'm going to talk about some of the first pages of More About Alcoholism, but I'm going to focus in on key parts and sentences. And I think the first paragraph is so important. Quote, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. You know, in a recent OA survey, it showed that only 1% of the membership is 25 years older less and you know it's pretty sad but I also think I know why you know people have to have gotten the idea that the way they eat isn't like other people and they may not be able to see the various symptoms described in this chapter but they do know something's wrong I mean let's face it we're the last house on the block we're the place compulsive eaters come you know when they've exhausted all the easier softer ways that were available, you know, to us. And, and for most people, you don't get to that point until you're a bit older, you know, hence the poll results. You know, and of course, 
there's no way to try all those easier softwares. I mean, it's a billion-dollar industry out there. But here's the thing. For a lot of people, those easier, softer ways work. But they don't work for me because I'm an addict, and I'm bodily and mentally different from those people. And, you know, I didn't want to believe that for a long time. I know for me, the idea that somehow, someday, I would control and enjoy my eating was the great obsession of my life. You know, I remember quoting a version of that sentence to response once. I, I said something like, I think, it's the great obsession of every compulsive eater to someday eat like normal people. And he said, no, we don't. We don't want to eat the way they eat. We want to eat the way we want to eat and have none of the bad effects. <laughs> and I laughed because, of course, he's right. You know, I don't know about you guys. I go out to dinner with a normie and... They order a piece of cheesecake, take one bite, and push it away going, oh, that's too rich. And I, I think they're from Mars, you know. Um, but now, I, there's also something I want to mention about this chapter. Um, there are two different ways a person can read this chapter. From the perspective of someone new coming into program, and from the perspective of someone who's been in program for a while and is dealing with relapse. You know, I did a special edition on relapse back in 2015, and Leah asked me what I wanted to call it. And countless vain attempts seem to me to be the perfect description of what goes on in the kind of relapse cycle that I had been in. You know, one of the things that got me to have some aha moments about relapse was to go back and read more about alcoholism again, but not only substitute the word food for alcohol, but also to think of it in the terms of my relapse cycle, not just when I had come in. You know, this chapter highlights one of my disease's main weapons, denial. You know, the thing about denial is it doesn't disappear once you step through the doors of OA. It just mutates. You know, once you're in, your disease is never going to whisper the things in your ear that it did before you came in. I mean, it knows it won't work because you're now aware of those thoughts. And you know, they're BS. So your disease has to get more creative and adapt. And for me, during my relapse, it used perfectly good program slogans against me. I remember even quoting the big book once as to why I relapsed. I mean, you know, talk about insanity, right? And it took me years to realize that there's no way to get ahead of this disease intellectually. You know, no matter how much I learned about the disease, it then just used all that knowledge against me. You know, as a friend who used to live here in L.A. always said, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. You know, the one good thing that happened as a result of my relapse was that I really got to understand that the price of abstinence is eternal vigilance. You know, no matter how much time I have, I will never be immune from that voice talking to me. You know, and it never speaks as an enemy. It always speaks as a friend. But that denial, that delusion is the essence of the insanity described in step, step two. You know, quote, the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. You know, exactly. But the hardest thing of dealing with insanity is first realizing you're insane. You know, I mean, in the outside world, people can get committed if they're delusional, but not in the 12-step world. This is a self-diagnosed disease. Now, think about that for a second. Think about how hard that really is. We have a disease that uses denial against us, yet somehow we have to break through that denial to admit three important things. One, that we're powerless over the food. Two, that we are insane in this one area. And three, that we need help from a power greater than ourselves 
because we can't do it alone. You know, I remember an old sponsor used to say, hey, if you could have done this yourself, you'd have done it by now, <laughs> you know. Now, I can also say one of the things that help, helps me a little is to switch the two parts of the step around and to say something to the effect of came to believe I was insane and that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Now, the trouble with the insanity we deal with in the second step is that it's an insanity with a very narrow scope. You know, we can be fully functional in 99% of the rest of our lives, and chances are nobody will ever accuse us of any diminished capacity there. But in this one area, we're cooked. You know, for a long time, I had trouble using the word insanity when it came to the food and my eating. Then I heard the best definition I'd ever heard for the word insanity. And it helped me see through that word that this word does work in terms of my food and eating. And that definition of insanity is this, quote, a state of mind which prevents normal perception. Bingo, that was it. All of a sudden, everything came into focus about the concept of insanity as it pertained to my disease. I had a state of mind which prevented normal perception. You know, in terms of my life, my sane life, it ran pretty well. But think about what sane behavior in your life is actually composed of. You know, it's composed of a thousand different choices you make every day. You know, from turning left at a traffic light to which dress you're going to buy in a store. And you make those decisions based on the information that you have coming into your head from your senses. And that information is analyzed and you make the decision, you know, you see a good decision. But when it comes to the food, I have a disease that prevents normal perception. You know, to put that in a geeky term, it corrupts the data on which I will make decisions. I mean, it's why Jim, who you're going to probably hear more about later, puts whiskey in his milk and thinks it'll make it okay. I mean, we read that story and we think it's crazy, right? Well, guess what? I'm guessing Jim thought it was crazy too, just not until the next day when he sobered up. I mean, how many of us have gotten up in the morning and asked ourselves how we could have done what we did the night before, you know, despite our firm plans to the contrary? You know, in other words, uh, to paraphrase the doctor's opinion, we passed through the well-known stages of a spree emerging ever remorseful with the firm resolution to not overeat again. And then there's this section of the chapter, quote, all of us have felt at times that we were regaining control but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. And put that together with this sentence from the next page. Quote, in some instances, there has been brief recovery followed always by a still worse relapse. You know, when we put these two sections together, we can also see how if we're playing with the food in program, our disease, our active disease has never left us. Why didn't it? Because we still have not truly admitted we are powerless over it. You know, as I said in my relapse talk, the problem for us who have been chronic slippers wasn't the slipping. It was the ability to get abstinent again that was the most dangerous. Because when you break your abstinence and get it back over and over, no matter how much you want to tell yourself you're powerless, 
there's a part of your brain that doesn't believe it because it has empirical proof to the contrary. You know, what it took me years to get was that, yes, I was powerful over the food, but only in that tiny, small picture. But every time I got the food in order again, the clock began ticking on to when I was going to go out. Why? Because I knew I could come back. And those relapses got longer and the times of abstinence got shorter. As it said, I was in the grip of a progressive illness. Now, the fact was, in looking back, I had never been abstinent during those periods. I was simply controlling my food as long as I could. In other words, I was just on a long in and out cycle and simply had a few in times that I mistook for entire abstinence. You know, what I had to come to understand and believe to the core of my being was that I am powerless in the big picture. In other words, if I make food an option, it'll always be the only option. And until I surrender to that concept, I would never have the relief I sought. And then there's this, quote, by every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule. Now, to me, the concept of self-deception and experimentation comes after you know about the disease of compulsive eating. I mean, before that, we weren't trying to prove we weren't compulsive eaters because we didn't even know what that was. But once we got here and heard the definition, I think we probably all knew deep down that we fit the description. You know, so why was I later trying to prove myself an exception? Simple, because I didn't want to put down my problem foods. Now, I mean, now I call them my problem foods, but then I called them my favorite foods. You know, because, heck, these had been longtime friends. They had gotten me through tough times, and I didn't want to see them go. You know, in some cases, I had even deluded myself into calling them abstinent foods. But any food that had that kind of power over me wasn't truly an abstinent food. These foods were calling the shots in my life, not me. But, you know, at the same time, I wanted what the people in program who were successful had. I just didn't want to do the work they had done. I didn't want to get entirely abstinent like they were. I mean, they had been placed in a position of neutrality with the food. That's what I had always wanted. Well, there is a blazingly simple concept of how to get placed into a position of neutrality with the food. If you want to get placed in a position of neutrality with the food, you need to put down all of the foods with which you cannot be neutral. But that unwillingness to do the work came from my immaturity which is a main character defect I identified in my fourth step inventory and I later worked on in my sixth and seventh step. And you know, once you begin to strip away those defects, you begin to get more mature. And once we get more mature, we know that there's only one way to deal with life's problems and that's to go through them. You know, we don't try to use the food as a distraction or escape from those problems and more importantly, the emotions that go with those problems. You know, it doesn't work anyway. And sooner or later, we're facing the same problems we ate over again. You know, how many times do we want to keep going around that track only to end up in the same place? Well, the main reason I ate and used food was that deep down, I was an emotional painophobe. I never wanted to feel emotional pain or discomfort. 
you know, I felt it would overwhelm me like it had as a kid when I grew up in an alcoholic household. And I had also deluded myself into thinking I never should feel any emotional pain or discomfort. But, you know, that's not the way life works. There's always going to be things that will upset me. Things won't always go my way. I'll have disappointments, frustrations, hurts, you know, even the losses of loved ones. You know, the program never promised me there wouldn't be such problems and crises, but it did promise me I would be given tools to deal with it all. As an old-timer here in LA always says, fight for your right to be uncomfortable. And, you know, with that new growth that we get through the steps, we begin to get humility. And by humility, I simply mean this definition I got a long time ago from a sponsor. Quote, humility is just an accurate view of myself and my place in the world. And once I have that, I realize I'm not special. You know, I'm going to have to do the work that others did to get the gifts they've been given. And I accept today I am bodily, mentally different from my fellows. Heck, I even accept that I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows in OA. I mean, there are people who say they can eat all foods moderately, and they seem to be able to do it. Well, you know, my hat's off to them because God knows I tried to do that for years and it didn't work. You know, that immature self was like, well, if those people in a way get to eat that way, I want to be able to eat that way, you know? Not anymore. It's like, sorry, John, you are bodily and mentally different from those folks. And today, I can come to accept my disease at that level of severity as it exists in me. And if I start to feel sorry for myself about this, I can just think about people I know with other diseases and medical problems. You know, they have to take numerous medications every day and go to medical treatments weekly or sometimes daily. And when I think of them and I think of me, I'm pretty grateful. Because I have a fatal disease that left unchecked will kill me. And all I have to do to arrest that disease a day at a time is to pick up that simple kit spiritual tools laid at my feet. In other words, put down the food, pick up the steps, trust God in this program recovery, and help another suffering overeater. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you so much, John Kay. Introducing panelist number two, Penny LC from Washington. We're on page 34 at this point. And we'll be going through page 39. Good morning. Welcome, Penny. Thank you very much, Leah. Thank you for your service. This is Penny L.C., a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater from the state of Washington. Good morning to everyone on the line. I'm going to start off by just um, looking at the chapter overall. And it points out that the at, that alcoholics have one great obsession to gain control over their drinking, and the same holds true for I believe compulsive overeaters, me myself in particular, with my food and my eating. But this is an illusion fed by my ego and self-will. In this section of the chapter, um, it. Is it goes beyond the experiment of quitting for a period of time. And it offers examples of mental processes that occur before a relapse. The thinking that 
precedes that first drink, or in my case, that first compulsive bite. So reviewing, um, we, I, I'm going to repeat the same quote that, first of all, we compulsive overeaters have lost the ability to control our eating. Quote, no real compulsive overeater regains, or excuse me, ever recovers control. And, quote, in the grip of a progressive illness, we get worse, never better. So this story that is um, outlined here begins with Jim. And his life's going well. Things are working for him. He's got a good job and a, and a work, you know, a, a success with his business and his family um, and and uh, et cetera. And, and he doesn't begin drinking until he's 35 years of age. But he reaches a critical level and he's institutionalized within a few years. He learns about AA and the solution. But on page 35, paragraph three, quote, all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And so for me, what does that mean? I believe he failed to practice step 11, not seeking through prayer and meditation to improve his conscious contact with his higher power. He did not follow through on the spiritual growth required for sobriety. It may have been that he only did steps one, two, and three and never took the action needed in four through nine, much less the maintenance uh, steps called for in uh, 10 through 12. Um, what does this look like in my history? I had a similar experience happen to me when um, first coming to 12-step meetings over 14 years ago. For six of those first 14 years, I attended meetings regularly, but I only had part-time abstinence for the same reasons as Jim. I had a sponsor that I connected with some of the time, made phone calls to fellows occasionally, worked on my uh, fourth-step inventory, which I finally completed at some point. You know, I know it took me at least over a year, and I did some amends along the way. I gained head knowledge, but never made a concerted effort to enhance my connection with my higher power or build that relationship. All the while, my disease was progressing, and abstinence was more and more difficult for me to achieve and maintain. Uh, for any length of time. I had been operating on what I refer to as white-knuckle abstinence most of the time and maybe made it to um, my definition of head abstinence some of the time, working off of the knowledge of my disease. But I never gained what I like to call heart abstinence which is operating from a free-flowing, two-way channel with my higher power. Heart abstinence would mean that I would be cultivating and nurturing my relationship with the God of my understanding 
on an ongoing daily basis. It would mean that I have complete neutrality around food, compulsive eating, and compulsive food behaviors. It would mean that I live in acceptance and operate from an honest, open-minded, and willing place. It would be living happy, joyous, and free, immersed in a positive attitude of gratitude. Thankfully, currently today, this is in this moment, I do live with heart abstinence. Yet I know it all depends on how I choose to carry out this day that will make the difference. I cannot have yesterday's serenity today without doing all the things today I did yesterday to obtain it then. So now going back to the big book and seeing the the active mental obsession in the story Jim shares on page 36, paragraph 2, quote, suddenly, and here's where the insanity begins, suddenly it crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. And boy, have I been there. But felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Then in paragraph three, quote, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So what happens? There the physical allergy is triggered. And notice that the big book uses italics to illustrate the insanity that that Bill is trying to convey here. And that insanity is highlighted by three things. One, deciding to drink despite the evidence that it's a bad idea. Two, um, it's not the crazy stuff we do um, after taking that first compulsive bite. That insanity is what happens before we take that first compulsive bite. And three, and that's just, I'm sorry, that was just what I was saying. Three, it occurs before a compulsive bite is actually taken. So then we look at page 37, paragraph one, quote, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. So insanity appears multiple times in the chapter. Insane, insanely, crazy. The um, the authors don't hesitate to use this word and lay it on thick. So what is the dictionary definition? I have the state of being seriously mentally ill Madness, extreme foolishness, or irrationality. And I'd say it's the twisted thinking common among addicts, knowing intuitively that it is not a smart thing to do, but assuring 
ourselves, it will be okay. In my history before committing to working all of the steps all of the time, I remember convincing myself, this was in that first six years period I'm referring to, that it was okay to have a dried fruit item when I, had, quote, had a desire for something sweet. Even though I knew it had been a food that I had binged on in the past, but it was a, quote, you know, legal, acceptable food. I was planning to be careful to only have a measured amount and only at a certain time, ignoring the fact that this is triggering the compulsive food behavior of eating um, one after another after another. That compulsive food behavior is something I have to stay away from. That just trips me up and triggers my disease. So my disease had an opening and it not only managed to have a negative effect on my food plan, it succeeded in taking me all the way back to full-blown compulsive eating and stripping me of any sense of my well-being at that time. On some level, I knew this was risky, but convinced myself it would be okay. There's the mental twist. And then in the chapter, another example is used by comparing alcoholism to jaywalking. Comparing an alcoholic to someone who gets a thrill out of racing across the street in front of fast-moving vehicles, oftentimes being injured. And when hospitalized, he swears to stay off the streets altogether. He knows it's dangerous, but, there's the but, anytime I've got a but in my rational thinking, I'm in trouble. So then when he's released, he runs right out in front of the truck and is injured. Seriously, all over again, there's the insanity. The practicing alcoholic may swear off only to be drinking again in a short time. The addict follows the same logic, continuing often to be driven by an emotion to do what they have promised to stop doing believing that no harm will come to them. It's somehow, in my mind, I think I can get away with something that is that logically does not add up, and yet I can convince myself, once again, that I can somehow get away with it that time. All my sound reasoning dissolves into a rationalization or a justification. Time and time again, I would assure myself that this time would be different, only to end up in a bag, box, or carton again. So consumed by the obsession, that rational thought and behavior are pushed aside. I am insane, less than whole in my mind around food and eating moderately. And that's a hard concept to accept to tell myself I am insane. It sounds as if I should be locked up. And I don't, you know, that I can't cope in in the world. And I can cope on probably about 
80 or 90% of my life. But when it comes to food, that's where I am insane. And I have to be able to accept that today or I'm doomed to repeat the same thing. On page 39, paragraph 1, quote, absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. As Bill's discovered and strives to convey to everyone who reads these pages, self-knowledge fails to keep an alcoholic sober or a compulsive eater like me abstinent. You know, Jim had problems. The jaywalker behaved absurdly. And I've had problems and behaved absurdly. But those are not the reasons for drinking, jaywalking, or compulsively eating. The disease is. I have a disease in my thinking, in my processing, which allows rational thought to be pushed aside. So in looking at the main points about this chapter and how we are being convinced yet again that we are at step one, um, first of all, the delusion that the alcoholic, or in my case, the compulsive overeater, can be like other people in regard to uh, food is exposed or alcohol in the case of the alcoholic. And second, the need to accept one's compulsive eating is the first step in the recovery process. And three, again, the fact that loss of control over eating is the central and irreversible feature of compulsive eating or a compulsive eater like myself. And four, a further analysis of the mental states that precede that first compulsive bite as states of temporary insanity. And five, these stages of temporary insanity do not yield to self-will or to self-knowledge. And six, only a spiritual answer, only divine help can save the compulsive eater from a life of misery and depression. So today I know that I put that safe boundary around my food. I remain entirely abstinent. I work all of the steps, all of the time, And I cultivate my relationship with my higher power, keeping that channel open in a two-way street, talking and listening, and following my intuition as guided. And by the grace of my higher power, I am abstinent and my life is a gift today. And I'm very grateful. Thank you for letting me share, and I'll pass. Thank you very much, Penny L.C.
Panelist number three, do L, to bring to life the conclusion of the chapter. Do star one to unmute. Good morning. This is Do L, Recover Compulsive Overeater from New York. Thank you so much uh, for this time of service. And I pray that um, whatever I share with you guys comes from God and not me. Um, so I really enjoy everybody's share on uh, more about alcoholism. And this chapter really focuses on the mind, right? So uh, I think the doctor's opinion covers the body. Now we're shifting attention to the greater aspect of our disease, which is found in the mind. But just a quick review. Um, I, I'm going to be talking about Fred and how Fred was, um, you know, a capable man. Uh, he, to all appearances, he was stable, well-balanced individual, and yet he was an alcoholic. Um, yet something was happening to him that he could not put down the alcohol and keep it down. And I think about that when, um, when I think about my own story and I think about the struggles that I had to go through in program, in program, not out of program, but in program, um, coming in and trying to make sense of what is the problem. Well, the problem, first of all, is I need to be abstinent. That's, if I'm not 100% abstinent, then you'll probably have a story like mine uh, and Fred's. Uh, where he tried to control and he tried to uh, learn as much as he could uh, to learn about his disease, which he did. Um, he went to the doctors and he went to program. And um, But Fred had a problem. Uh, he could not accept that he was an alcoholic, much less accept spiritual help. And that was the beginning of his problem, right? It's that the Dow is that step one issue. Um, if, if I don't believe it, I can't achieve it, right? So it's like he had to understand who he was, um, first of all. If I don't know who I am, I, I'm not going to aim for something or to get, try to get better. Um, so he, he first had to learn that. And that was a process for him because... He was interested in some of the symptoms, but he wasn't willing to give up his alcohol, alcoholism. Um, and I think, you know, when I first came into program, I really wanted to lose weight. I really wanted to experience, um, you know, sobriety, um, uh, being abstinent. But I, I didn't quite know how to achieve that because uh, I knew that the food had to be down, but you know, once the food was down, something else was taking over. And it was my mind. It was, it was all these thought processes that I could um, still control, still manage, um, that I could some kind of way find the magic formula to binge, uh, keep the weight off, and, and still, you know, live a happy, joyous, and free life. Well, that didn't happen. Um, I did lose the weight. I gave up most of my binge foods and, uh, you know, I gained for four years. I was, I was a healthy body weight. Um, and, but I was, 
my life was unmanageable. My life was a complete mess. And that's what uh, Fred is talking about here. He's talking about that, you know, he, he tried to convince himself. He tried to, you know, make these excuses and, you know, and, and um, trying to impress on himself these great ideas about the fact that he could be self-willed, self-determined, self-reliant, and that he can, um, that he could, you know, come up with this great, fabulous idea of how to stay sober without accepting any help, without going to meetings, without, uh, you know, expanding his spiritual life. Um, and it was all about him. It was all about the eyes. Um, the whole chapter, as a matter of fact, the rest of this chapter on Fred's, uh, Fred's story is about, you know, him trying to do it on his own. And, and if you count all the eyes, it's, it's a lot of eyes in, in this chapter. And so just, just to quickly review, um, so we covered that he knew that he couldn't drink, um, but something took over him. This thought process took over him that kept him in the drink. And for me, um, I, I remember coming to program, put down the food. I didn't put all the food down. Um, and I was insane. I was, I was just out of my mind thinking, how am I going to manage? How am I going to control this? How am I going to do this? Well, the problem, we have to first define what the problem is. The problem for the mind, not the body, we already got the body. The body is an allergy, you know, that if I ingest my binge foods and I ingest those key food ingredients that cause me the allergy, I'm going to go off to the races. But now we're centering on the mind, right? Uh, on page 23, it gives a definition of what the, the mind problem is and it says therefore the main problem of the alcoholic centers is his mind rather than his body and uh just to highlight you know he offers you a hundred alibis excuses justifications and his mind is fallacious reasoning meaning that he's crazy senseless unsound illogical when it comes to these binge foods um and for him with the alcohol, for me, it's a binge food. But the funny thing is, like, when I defined this, I, I was like, okay, so if the problem is dishonesty, what is the solution? So on page, how it works, it talks about that the solution is rigorous honesty. Um, so that's part of it, right? Because the mind encompasses not just the lies and the justification, the excuses to get back into our binge foods, but it also encompasses the forgetfulness, you know, the habits. It encompasses the fact that, you know, um, I, I can't seem to make heads or tails of, you know, um, why I do what I do. And then it encompasses also part of my character defects, which kicks in. You know, I want to do what I want to do, and I'm always going to get what I've always got. And that's what, what Fred sees here. It's like, you know, it's not just the mind, um, but it also encompasses the fact that he's arrogant, he's self-willed, uh, he wants things his way, um, and, and uh, as much as he tries to do it differently, um, to keep that 
drink down, he can't do it himself. So four things that I, um, that I came up with as I was going through an early recovery, um, and even, even after years of being in program, is that I don't deal with abstract, I deal with the concrete, right? I, I, need, I need tangible, I need like solid stuff to be able to work this. And so the four things that I came up with is, first of all, I need to know that I have an allergy to the body and an obsession of the mind. The, the body, I address it immediately by getting rid of those things that cause me to continue in the physical part of that uh, uh, insanity. The mental, I have to address with four things. One, it talks about if dishonesty is what causes me to uh, stay in the mental obsession, then I need to count counteract it with honesty. Two, if um, I lack power or lack control of my binge foods and, and the way I think over my binge foods, then I need a power greater than myself. Three, if uh, my life becomes unmanageable as a result of um, the way I think, the way I feel, the way I perceive things, right? then I need the countermeasures to follow clear-cut directions and to surrender, right? Because part, part of it is if it's control, then I need to do the very opposite. I need to surrender. And four, if I think that I can live this program through osmosis because I'm going to get pixie dust some kind of way and I'm going to get this program, then the solution there would be to practice these principles in all of my affairs and to get the, the, the experience of living a life without picking up those pinch foods. So I have to practice and I have to experience it, which is my immunity. And so, you know, these four combinations, I had to come up with a solution. So for for Fred, he had to analyze what was the problem first, right? He went back and he talked it over with a recovered person and, um, and they went through his drinking history and they said, hey, you know, what caused you to put yourself in these places? What caused you to think this way before you even got to that drink? You were having these thought process. And sometimes, you know, it was no thought process at all. You know, sometimes it, he, he had the perfect day and there was not a cloud in the horizon, and yet he picked up. But here it is. Even if I'm conscious of what I'm doing, my subconscious is still working disease-wise. You know, and so we come on page 41, and he says, I crossed the threshold of the dining room, and the thought came to my mind that it would be nice to have more, uh, to have a couple of cocktails with my dinner. And that was all, nothing more, right? And so, you know, it's that thought process that we need to be on guard of. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I did in very early recovery was I, I had asked my sponsor, I said, uh, how, how do I do this? Because, you know, I, I mean, I could put down the food. But let me tell you something, I am like insane right after that, right? Like I'm repeating the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. That's another definition of insanity or, or being delusional and not seeing what's right in front of me, right? Like thinking that something 
is factual when it's not. And so that's how my mind works. And I said, I, I, need, I need something concrete. You got to give me something that is tangible, something that I could do. And I think that's what these guys did with, um, with, with Fred. You know, they explained to him the grave nature. They explained to him, you know, and it wasn't until he got that crushing blow. It wasn't until he got sick and tired of being sick and tired that he did something about it, you know. But he had to also know what the problem was. You know, if I don't know what the problem is, I'm not going to uh, go move towards the solution. And so for me, it was knowing what the problem was, knowing that as long as food was my friend, they were not my enemies. And God is not going to save me from my friends. He's going to save me from my enemies. That's the first thing that I had to conclude. You know, I had to conclude that the way I was approaching the food and the way I was thinking around my food had to change. Now, could I do that on my own? No. Uh, this is a we program. This is not an I program. Um, and so I had to reach out. I had to reach out to other people. I had to... Um, follow the clear-cut directions that were given to me. And I had to also uh, do away with the arrogance. So what I see in Fred's story is the arrogance, the arrogance of thinking that he can do it on his own, uh, the arrogance of thinking that he's going to manufacture a solution for himself. Um, and for me, I remember coming into program and thinking, you know, I'm going to figure God out because that, that's what it says, right? You need a power greater than yourself, so that's the solution. And I'm going to figure that out so I can get the solution so I can stop eating. And I remember somebody in program coming to me, and she says, how arrogant you are. And I was shocked that she said to me, that to me. Because I, I was like, why are you saying that? And she says, how dare you think that you're going to get God when God already got you? See, he already implemented this program in 1934, wrote the big book in 1939 before you even were thought of so that you can have an opportunity to come and migrate towards God. It's not that you're going to get God. God already got you. So can you be humble and accept what he has offered you, which is this program of recovery? Can you follow the directions that are given to you so that you can do what the other recovery people have done? And I was floored at that moment because I realized that I was just in that self-knowledge and self-will for four years in program. I never could get recover. I went to big book meetings. I uh, had one of the best sponsors ever, 12-step program. I mean, big book, big book person, uh, taught me every day at a meeting, you know, what the 12 steps were, and I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it because I couldn't understand that it starts not only as soon as you put down the food, you need to address the mind. And the mind is all the lies, the justifications, the excuses that lead me back into the food. So I had to address that. And one of the things, countermeasures that was given to me is, you know, first of all, create a funeral for your binge foods. You know, that was concrete. I, I could go and do that and visualize a funeral for these binge foods. 
I had to also notice that they were not my friends. They were fair weather friends. They were, they were foods that were killing me and pretending to give me a good time. You know, um, I had to start thinking of the food not as my friend, not those key food ingredients. I had to think of them as my enemy. And I had to start thinking differently about how I thought about my food, where I went, how I went. You know, um, I couldn't go to those places. You know, I, I remember being in a, in a place where there, there was a buffet and I went there and I sat there and I called my sponsor and I said, I'm here at a buffet place. And she's like, what, what, what the heck are you doing there? You know, get out of there. And I didn't think to do that. She's like, first of all, what, what are you doing there? And I said, I don't know. I don't know why I'm here. It's so, it so, feels so comfortable and so, um, it feels natural to be here. It feels like I should be here, even though I know, kind of like in the back of my mind, I'm making a bad decision because I'm getting closer to my foods. But, you know, I followed the directions. I got out of there. You know, so in early recovery, I needed to do a lot of things, a lot of things. And one of the things that I had to do was follow the directions, follow the directions, surrender, surrender the fact that I knew better. And I think that is the biggest crux of this problem is thinking that you're going to lick it this time, thinking that uh, I'm not hopeless enough, that uh, I can't do this. I make decisions every day. I make decisions to brush my teeth, to get dressed, to take a shower, um, to go outside, you know, but yet when it comes to my binge foods, I can't make a decision to say, you know, I'm going to follow directions. I'm going to trust somebody else that knows better than I do to do this program. And that includes, you know, and I say all this because that includes this higher power. This higher power is all of it. This higher power for those that say, uh, well, I'm atheist, I'm agnostic, I can't get this. I beg to differ. I, I came being an atheist who turned to an agnostic who became a believer. How did that happen? Following directions, you know, and the directions is telling me I don't have to um, kind of like conceptualize this, this God of my parents or this God of religion or this God of theology or this God of anything, all I have to have is power greater than myself that causes me to have results. And when I follow the directions, good orderly directions, so, so do the acronym God, right? Good orderly direction. Where do I find this good orderly direction? In the 12 steps. Where do I find the solution? In the 12 steps. Where do, where, where do I uh, find this divine help? Uh, from my hopeless condition in this big book and in the 12 steps. So that's, that's what um, Fred had to conclude. He had to do, uh, it says, but the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. And so I meant that I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That, that was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through the process, I had the curious feeling that the alcoholic condition was relieved as fact as it proved to be. And for me, that is what a higher power means. Following directions, uh, it means being honest. It means surrendering. 
my control, uh, and and doing the practical things, the practical suggestions that um, that are given to me, you know, on a daily basis from an experienced person, and trusting, trusting that that person, the reason why they're giving you that experience because they've been through it, and they could get you through it, you know. If I don't trust that, I'm a big doodle because it says here that if I go back to the mental obsession, I'm going to be repeating the cycle until I'm either dead, I'm either going to have cardiac arrest, or I'm just going to be, like, insane to the point where I will never have what I've recovered with being happy, joyous, and free. So my question and my conclusion to this is, how free do you want to be? You know, do you want to do you want to stay in the insane cycle of this disease? Because you could, you know, that's your choice. Or do you want to accept spiritual help and follow the directions? And just to review, you know, if if the mental obsession is the dishonesty, the counterbalance is honesty. If, if lack of power, lack of control, then get a power greater than yourself. Get the steps. That's a power greater than yourself. If, if you have lack of manageability in life, you know, then follow the clear-cut directions. It will become manageable through the steps. And then practice. Practice. Do the steps. Not just say it. So many people come in programs and say, I want recovery. But then when it comes down to the work, they're like, I'd rather be in the food sad but true but i i hope that this um this uh defense of a higher power is a, a little bit more clearly defined and the insanity of, of of the mind is more clearly defined and um i'm grateful to have share my experience strength and hope with you and uh with that i pass Thank you so much, Du. Thanks to our three panelists this morning, John K., Penny L.C., and Du L., for developing this chapter, Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, so thoroughly and beautifully for all of us this morning. Much appreciated. The share ID for today's presentation, 12,496. That's 12496 for today's presentation. And the contact information for our panelists will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We are going to now transition to a question and answer segment. And you can pose a question to our panelists by pressing star 1 to unmute, and please offer your name, including the first letter of your last name. Also, if you have a specific panelist in mind that you'd like to respond to your question, you could add that as well. Gina R. G. Gina R. Katie G. Lindsay B. Rowena K. Lindsay B. Rowena K. Rowena K. Julie right. Julie S. Athos and Frank. Excellent. Okay. That's a great group to begin with. Gina R., please pose your question. Everybody else mute. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Leah. This question is for Du L. Du, could you describe maybe some specifics, not around the food, 
um, where you noticed your life was unmanageable and how did that um, quote unquote feed into you really recognizing that, and I'm going to put this on there, the wheels were coming off the bus for you. Thank you. Sure, um, I'd be glad to answer that. Uh, so my unmanageability um, came more when I put down the, uh, for me, alcohol and the food. Uh, and so how that manifested in my life is I lost my business. I lost my home. Um, <laughs> I lost my uh, income. And I lost my son in a custody case. So, um, you know, uh, because I was not showing up for life. I was not showing up for my finances. I was not showing up for, um, uh, you know, anything in, in my life. And so that's how it manifested. I, I think, you know, people say, well, you're making too heavy of this. No, it, it really got that bad. Uh, I became almost close to 250 pounds. Uh, I became agoraphobic. I would not leave my home. I would not take care of my son. I would not take care of, you know, what I needed to do. And uh, I didn't care. I cared just to be in the food. And um, and life got pretty bad really fast. So, um, yeah, when I say unmanageable, I really mean unmanageable. <laughs> so, uh, but this program has restored me. And just, just to share quick, quick, very specific I remember my son telling me, um, I hate you and I wish you were dead. And through this program, what he's told me after I made amends with him was, Mom, I didn't like the mom you were, but today I like the mom that you've become. And so keep being that mom. Hope that answers your question. Actually, I was more interested in I think you were saying that you had been in program that there was still a lot of unmanageability I, I was more focused on that what happened or maybe I misunderstood you no no I, I've had the two dual experiences because uh, I, as John mentioned uh, you could be in early recovery and have this unmanageability and you could be in program for a while and still have the unmanageability so my unmanageability manifests when I don't, when I rest on my laurels. So I've had, um, I think, three relapses since I've been in program uh, for OA. And uh, in, in those three times, the unmanageability manifested in my taking my self-will back, uh, thinking that I was hot stuff and that I look at how many sponsors I sponsor and look at who sponsors me and uh, look at how much service I'm doing. And uh, so the ego, the ego crept in and uh, the last thing to go was the food. But the relapse started with my disconnect with God and my ego creeping in so that I was not uh, conscientious the fact that I was heading for a relapse. So I hope, I hope that answers your question. Yes, very clear. Thank you so much. Blessings to all. Thanks, Gina R. Katie G., your turn. Thanks, Leah, <clears throat> for your service, KG. Uh, recovered in Boston. Um, this question would be for uh, Penny and Dew, just because of their, the way that what they talked about. Um, I'm just wondering, um, 
two questions, your daily accountability in terms of making sure that um, <clears throat> you're going towards God and not towards the disease, and how you might respond to somebody who says, you know, they're on step nine or 10 and they're reevaluating um, their alcoholic foods and thinking about expanding back to going back to foods that were formerly alcoholic and, and maybe what your response to that might be and what your personal experience with that might be. And thanks. Penny. This is Penny. I'd be happy mm -hmm. to answer that. Go ahead. Um, my daily accountability begins when I wake up. I'm connecting with my higher power. I make sure that there's time for prayer and meditation in the morning and um, being sure that I am thinking in terms of what God would have me be during, throughout the day. I make sure that I pause and um, reflect on on just that if I'm if I'm disturbed in any way, just as we're guided to do. And um, I will take extra measures throughout. You know, if I'm given the opportunity to take um, quiet time, if that's needed, um, even that can look like taking a walk. And um, and just meditating during that walk time, but for sure I come back into um, and I deal with anything that uh, that really disrupts my day by reaching out to fellows and processing through whatever that is that has unbalanced me, and definitely coming back around in the evening and spending time with my higher power as I as I go through my inventory, my nightly review, and reconnect with how I succeeded or or where I fell short on on that ideal of what my higher power would have me be. And then in regard to the other question about um reintroducing alcoholic foods into uh, my food plan. I've not had that experience, but I do know that that is a temptation that can exist. And I've talked to others that have tried it unsuccessfully. And I believe what that really speaks to is just simply the disease trying to take hold again, trying to trying to convince a rational mind, which is not ir not not rational, more irrational than ir than rational at that point, that it can have those foods and be okay. And I think that that is that is a sign of a form of relapse starting, because that's when my will is is being taken back. I have a better idea. And don't you know I'm going to implement it? And boy, oh boy, that is a slippery slope headed for a, a real disaster. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Penny LC. Katie G., is your mind clear with that? 
or you'd like a response from Do as well? Sure. Yeah, that was great. Thanks. You're good. Okay. Lindsay B., question, please. Star one to unmute. Good morning, panelists. What a wonderful treat for a, a Sunday morning. I got so much out of all three of you. I, I think this question probably I want to direct to, to John. And, um, you know, the vainless countless attempts. I mean, oh, my gosh, you know, that's been the story of my life. So one of the questions I have for you is, and um, I'm back actually in this chapter again, and I'm getting so much more out of it. It's amazing that we can still get more out of it. So my question is, I'm wondering, as a person that has, um, you know, got it so many times, you know, I've arrived, I've arrived. Um, I've done an awful lot of um, fourth steps, and, and I have to say each one, definitely, you know, I get some things that I didn't get before, but I'm wondering if you could talk about your experience with that, you know, going back to the beginning and what you learn in the fourth step experience. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Um, I've done numerous fourth steps. I have a friend, and Sheila, who, who was always talking about the two different kinds of, I think it's Akron versus New York, about uh, people who do, you know, steps 1 through 12 and then just stay in 10, 11, and 12 or to restart. Well, I happen to believe in the restart thing only because um, more is revealed. More is revealed. Things in my second, fourth step, you, you know, weren't in my first one because either A, I'd forgotten them, B, I didn't realize they were something I should be putting down, etc. You know, it's about that peeling of the onion. You know, I always joke that I say that I'm peeling the onion like crazy, but they keep making more onion on me, you know. But the fact is, is that I have to keep, you know, doing that. I have to keep looking and, and realizing. I always say that my disease will get back in through my character defects because, you know, for example, my immaturity, you know, uh, you know, why didn't I have trouble you know, getting the entire abstinence, you know, years ago when I was in my relapse cycle. Well, I, I sort of mentioned it in my talk that I would watch people who ate things that I couldn't eat, you know, that they could eat with impunity, and I wanted to be like them. And I had to, I had to get to the point of working the steps enough to realize, you know, that's just the way it is, John. It's fine. And um, and, and to keep working at that because, I, I, you know, like I said, it, it really is eternal vigilance. I was, I was talking to somebody, I don't know, the other day about how it doesn't, how much, it doesn't matter how much time you have abstinent. It, it, it doesn't get you any more, you know, abstinence muscles, really. You know, I, I always joke that I said, you know, if, if you've got a year of abstinence and this person's got five years and I've got 23 and Terrell's got 40, all we're doing is climbing up the outside of the Empire State Building, you know, and what that means is we're all just one let go away, you know, and uh, and the higher up you are, the bigger the splat will be, and 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 I just need to remember that phrase, eternal vigilance. Uh, it comes from a thing from the Revolutionary War uh, in the United States, um, but that I cannot get ahead of it, and I have to keep working at it and and that you know it took me a long time because i do have that delusion i had the thing fred did oh i understand now i and you know what my self of knowledge wouldn't didn't avail me any more than it did fred or bill w who ended up pounding the bar asking how it could happen again and that happened to me i had the exact mirror story of bill of pounding my my hand on the bar because i understood okay i am a compulsive eater i know i have to follow this food plan everything will be okay and you know and so I think we have to work so hard because, um, you know, Fred's story to me is the most dangerous. It's those strange mental blank spots 
that uh, require me to keep working those steps. I don't know if that answered you, Lindsay. Thanks, Lindsay, for the question. Thank you. That was a lovely answer. Thanks. Thank you. Rowena Kay, star one to unmute. Hi, this is Rowena Kay. Um, thanks so much for the talks today. I found them really moving. Um, my question's for John. Um, you spoke about um, your relapse cycle and how you didn't... Um, you, you didn't really fully concede that you were powerless over food because you kept being able to get back on so quickly. And, you know, your your brain had proof that you weren't powerless, even though you qualify that later and say that, you know, in the big picture you weren't. What I want to know is um, if you could just expand a bit more on that. And also, was there um, a specific turning point, you know, for you, like a moment um, when you realized that you were powerless over food, when the, when you you know, was that a specific moment in your recovery? Um, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. Um, no, I wish I could claim the uh, ability to be a genius about this. A lot of the things I have come to understand about relapse have come after the fact, looking backwards, being abstinent and being able to say, oh, now I understand this. Now I got this because uh, in the moment I couldn't get it. And, and all I had to do in the beginning, it was just keep the food down. And, I, you know, um, uh, you know uh, in my other program, one of the phrases you hear a lot more is first things first. And first things first means I have to have the food down first. And that needs to be almost job one. I'll tell people who call me because I get I'm the relapse guy here. <laughs> and uh, they'll say, well, what do I do actually? I say, look, Forget everything else. Get 30 days under your belt. Make that your full-time job. And then you can start to look at, at all of the other stuff because, um, you know, if you don't have the food down, all the rest of this is, is just theoretical blah, blah. And uh, it, it, the thing that the steps does is to not help me get the food down, but to keep the food down. And, and, and yeah, the, the whole thing was powerlessness. I never really truly got powerlessness. I always joke that I said... Um, I absolutely believe I'm powerless over a bullet and a gun uh, because I've never taken a gun and put it to my head and as I'm pulling the trigger say, well, I'll start again on Monday, you know, and because um, I know that's not going to work, but I have to treat my food the same way. I, I can tell you I've buried two sponsees in this program. When I get kidded in the other program about OA, I tell people that. I've buried two sponsees in OA and I have a really dear friend who, who passed by too from this disease and the thing that scares me to this day is all three of those people hadn't not gotten it they had it they had it and they gave it away and the thing is you know if i could go back in a time machine and as each of them was about to pick up that first bite, go for god's sakes don't do this because you know what's going to happen you're going to go out you're going to eat for a while you're going to come back you're going to try and make OA work it's not going to work you're going to leave again for a little while then you're going to come back again for a little while and then you're going to leave and then you're going to die and if i could get that through that first bite means a lot more and again that humility i have now tells me that i could be that person i could be that if it can happen to them it can happen to me and that's why um that first bite becomes a lot more important when you realize this could be the gun to your head that you're pulling the trigger on. And so for me, the, the key about it, it was powerlessness. And then also a, a little thing I'll mention is that um, 
I had trouble understanding how my disease worked on me and how it 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 integrated itself in my all the rest of my thoughts because you know I always joke I said if if our disease spoke differently if it had a different sound if it sounded like Darth Vader and went John go eat you know I, I there'd be a part of us all that would go oh no that's my disease I got to not listen to that but because it sounds exactly the same as all the other thoughts in our heads we have to we have to tease away and not think about how it sounds, but we need to think about what it's saying. You know, when it would try to get me to go eat, I'm, I'm working like a madman. I'm going to, you know, three to five meetings a week. I'm a sponsor. I have a sponsor. I'm a delegate in a group. And yet in that moment, my disease is pushing me to have the impulse to forget all that. And then to tell me afterwards that it was my idea. And it wasn't <laughs> my idea. It was the disease's idea. It just convinced me of that. And then it just made me feel guilty. Now I can see the urge to eat and things like that as something outside me coming toward me because I can defend myself against something coming at me. But if I think it's just me, yeah, I'm cooked. Anyway, I hope that helped. Thank you, Rowena K. for the question. Julie F., star one to unmute. Julie F. Perhaps Julie had to leave the line. Okay. Who else has a question this morning for our panelists? This will be the final invitation for questions. Star one to unmute. Vinayana M. Jason K. Jason, I got you. Joe P. Cindy K. Cindy K. Vinny T. Vinny T. Nan K. Nan K. Anyone else? Thus far, I have Cindy K., Jason K., Vinny T., Nan K. Who did I miss? All right. That's a group for us. Again, this is the final invitation. Anybody else with with a question? I'll take that as a no. Cindy Kay, go right ahead with your question, please. Hi, I'm Cindy Kay, compulsive overeater. Thank you, panelists, for this great talk. Um, my question is for John. Um, I, too, have had difficulties staying on program for um, any length of time. I've been in um, program for about a year intensively, I thought, doing the steps, but then I have a one-day relapse, and then I do good for about three months, and then I have a one-day relapse again. And I'm frustrated because I think I'm powerless, I say I'm powerless, um, but then I get this cases of excuse expression. I have a case of what I call fuck it, where I just say, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm, go- I'm going to have this. And I know that shows that I am trying to take back control. But how can I get over that part of myself? 
um, that gets, I guess, I take my will back. I don't want to take my will back, but that's what um, I'm told I do. Or if, they, if, for example, I have a nice big salad, but there's one thing I want on it, and I say, oh, well, I can have that. But then now I'm looking at it like that's not entirely honest of me. So I was wondering if you had anything you could speak to in that regard. Thank you. I pass. John Kay, can you respond to Cindy's question? Oh, somehow I got muted. Sorry. Um, I uh, what was I going to say about that? Um, you know, for me, again, it, it goes back to that concept of powerlessness, and and the, oh, I'm just going to have that. I never get past that. Well, and then what happens, John? Uh, you know, am I, you know, and that was the one thing when I would say I was powerless, but I would just go out and, and, you know, I never went out with the idea of, oh, the heck with OA, this doesn't work, I'm leaving. And, and so what was I actually saying under the surface there? I was saying, when I'm done, I will come back and I will get abstinent again. You know, where is the powerlessness in that? Where is the gun to my head? Gee, I, if I do this, I may, that may be the end of me. It's not there. And and it's so hard. I, you know, I wrote an article years ago for, um, for an uh, outside website that dealt with all addictions, and I managed to get a bunch of people peed off at me because uh, I said, and, and the name of the article was, food is deadlier than drink. And one of the reasons I say that is, you know, I've been sober for 37 years, and, and I know that if I pick up that drink, it, it could literally be death within, you know, a real short amount of time from something. Uh, but the food delivers the pain in a much more dull, chronic way. So especially if we're smart, we can keep moving those goalposts. And and that's, in a lot of ways, what makes this so hard. It's like, well, you know, eating that one thing, whatever it is, even if it's like your worst thing, isn't going to kill you in the moment. The trouble is, is that our disease has those blanking things that makes it so we can't, we don't extrapolate, where's that going to go? And what happens then? And then what next? Uh, we only think of that. And we think of, well, I'll get back on. So um, in terms of that, one other thing I'll say, and then I'm going to shut up because I don't want to dominate here. Um, that relapse talk I did in, in December 2015, I was told, I've been told by a lot of people help. And it's up on the Vision for You uh, website. And you may, you may want to listen to that. And then at the end, I, I'll leave my contact information. And, and you, we can always talk some more. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you, Cindy K, for the question. Jason K, your turn. Jason K, star one to unmute, please. Hi, this is Jason K from outside of Philadelphia. I'm trying to formulate the question that's maybe most relevant to John. Um, you know, as and I spent about 17 years in a relapse cycle and coming to OA and and, and leaving. And the question is is this information is basically step one information conclusions of the mind. Um, can we share this with people as they're going through their relapse cycles? Can some of that get in? Um, and on the contrary, how we talk about put down the food to work the steps, um, you know, but the food's distorting our reality. People are in relapse coming to meetings. Like, how, can this information get in? 
uh, yeah, does that, I hope that makes sense. And uh, I guess essentially be when do we start sharing this with people? Can we share it with people who are stuck in the food? Would they benefit from it? Well, I, I think you can't help but benefit from uh, from any of that. It, it is so hard, with, you know. And I went to I went to God knows how many meetings, you know, in the disease in program, having been, you know. And by the way, when I was in my relapse cycle, I was 14 years into this program. I was going to meetings three days a week. It wasn't like I went and then left. I was here, but the, the and I am the perfect example how knowledge of our disease alone will not cure us because I was seeing some of the craziest things. I mean, I if I when I lead a retreat, I'll, I'll take five or ten minutes just to tell all the crazy stuff I used, and they were perfectly good program slogans, mind you. But it wasn't about that. In other words. You know, one of my favorites was, well, I'm praying for the willingness, you know. Well, you know, uh, I heard a lady at a convention say once, you know, when it comes to addiction, willingness is highly overrated, you know. And the reality is that to get, we can't will ourselves to get willing. You know, it tends to be driven uh, by pain, you know, the pain that we get. And, and again, like I was just saying in the last question, it's so hard because the pain we get with the compulsive eating isn't the acute pain that you get with alcohol and drugs and things like that. It's, it's so much more of a double pain. But again, I, I just genuinely, you know, as much as I would love to tell people, oh, well, if you keep working, that was one of the other things. Oh, I'll work the steps and then I'll get abstinent. Oh, I'll work on my higher power and I'll get abstinent. You know, and um, if I had one thing I could say about, you know, rewriting the big book, and I would never have the temerity to do that, is I would love to put a page in the front that says, this book supposes that you have already put down your substance. It's pretty useless until you've done that. But my disease would take all those perfectly good program slogans because it got up every day during my relapse with one job to do, and that was to get me to figure out how to kick the can down the road another day on putting the food down. And if it could do that with perfectly good program things, or, or and, and it was all about deluding myself into thinking I was working toward it, when the reality was I wasn't. The working toward it is really simple. You put down the food and you don't pick it up. You work with a, a food sponsor, do whatever you have to. But again, my disease will, even within years in program, will throw stuff at me to make me feel like I'm doing something when the reality is all I'm doing is taking up a chair. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jason K. Vinny T. Uh, this is Vinny T. May I be heard? I hear you. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you all on the panel today for your words um, and wisdom. Um, very helpful. Uh, my question um, is not so much on relapse. It, it's when we come in, uh, you know, we, we come in desperate. Um, we wouldn't be here if not. Um, and, you know, we're told to put down the food and, and, and become abstinent and that, you know, we'll get clarity. But what I hear a lot of times with, with especially people who are starting, you know, starting out uh, with, you know, getting a sponsor and getting into the steps, is you know how you know how do they um, keep keep the abstinence um, until they get some serenity? You know, I mean, we, we you know we go into the steps and we do them and we and we achieve some serenity. But I know for me, you know, I didn't really understand serenity until I had my spiritual awakening point, and then 
it was like, oh my gosh, now I, I know, you know, I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing my disease in my head every day, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it, I guess what I'm asking is how do we keep, keep people, you know, on, on program while they're still, you know, um, feeling uh, distressed um, and, and in trying to do the work? That, that's my question. Thank you, Vinny. Panelists? This is Penny. I'd be happy to answer that. Please do. Go Vinny, right ahead. I think it's really a matter of keeping them immersed in the work because it is, it's just a matter of continually showing them the truth of our disease. You know, we've got to be working the steps every day and I believe that's the process of reading and writing, staying in the literature, staying in the solution, is what is the greatest uh, buffer to our disease. And as well, introducing and, and ferreting out with them their concept of their higher power. So often with sponsees, newcomers, I find that they, their concept of a higher power while they may have one, is not necessarily one that works for them. There's a blockage there. They may not realize it. And so I spend time being able to help them uncover what that looks like and discover a higher power that will work for them under all conditions and, and foster that relationship and begin to feel that connection and begin to build and that trust that they can sense their intuition when they know they're not being any too smart about a decision they're about to make. That would be my answer. Thank you. Could, could I just throw in something? Please throw. Thank you very much. <laughs> One of the things I tell newcomers that are really struggling is this program requires faith. But it's not just faith in a higher power alone. It's faith in this process because a lot of our, what we do here is front-loaded with pain in terms of we, in the beginning we're told this, that we do this stuff, but we still don't feel it. We're told we're going to feel better when we do a fourth-fifth step, but we don't feel it. But we just keep moving forward and all these things. And this is one of those places where um, it, it's important to do that, and it's also still important, as I said before, about first things first. I, if a person is really, you know, screaming with, with, you know, wanting to eat, I can throw any program slogan or aphorism at them. It's not going to help. It's about, okay, how do we deal with this? And one of the other things is I think sometimes we pander to a person's disease in, in terms of expectations. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, it's not that way. A quick example, I, when I – got my current abstinence, it, it, I was having, I kept trying, and I went through three or four sponsors, and every time I, I binged, my sponsors would say nice things like, well, you know, pray to God, maybe read this, do that, and it didn't help. Finally, the sponsor who made it help, he sat me down, he said, okay, here's the situation, John, your first 30 days are going to suck. <laughs> now, they, they didn't, but the fact that he, he changed my view of expectations, that it helped because most days they didn't suck. But when they did suck, I was like, oh, okay, I'm right on, 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 on schedule. 
And, and part of that faith is to, tell, is to tell people, those of us who have got 20 and 30, 40 years, if it was as hard for us to do today as it was in my first 30, 60, 90 days, I'm not a masochist. I wouldn't keep doing it. But to get to the point where it's easy, we have to get through the part where it was hard first, and then it will get easier. Anyway, I hope that helps. Thanks. Oh, do. Go right ahead. Oh, yeah, I'd also like to shine in on this question because I think it's really important, especially when you're coming in, you're struggling, you're struggling to put down the food, and then you have, you know, as soon as you put down the binge foods, what's popping up, the mental obsession, and people need to know that. Like from the very beginning, I go directly into the doctor's opinion. I go into that paragraph that it says, you know, that we are um, – you know, that we must believe that the body and the, the mind of the alcoholic are abnormal. So I need to know who I am as a, as a compulsive eater from the very, very get-go, from the doctor's opinion. I need to understand it's not just putting down the food that I'm dealing with. I'm dealing simultaneously with the mental obsession because as soon as I put down the food, day one, I'm obsessing. I'm obsessing over the food. You know, so what are the practical suggestions that I was given from the very get-go? First, acknowledge the problem. I have this voice that's going to tell me that I could pick up, that I am different, that I'm going to be the exception, that I'm going to find the magic pill. You know, that's the voice that's going to talk to me. It's the disease voice. You know, and then my voice is, I'm going to find a solution. I'm going to uh, orchestrate uh, the situation. I'm going to put myself in high-risk situations, you know, so that I can get closer to the food. So, I mean, I have all these things working against me. I love what John said because that's the first thing my sponsor tells me is step one is going to suck. It is not a cushy step. It is not a nice step. It is going to be a, a step that you're going to feel like death is knocking on your door. And I had to realize that that's what I was dealing with. Because, see, if, as long as I don't know what I'm dealing with, as long as I'm, I'm clueless to how to address the problem, I'm not going to move towards the solution. You know, and some of the practical suggestions is if you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, it's recommended, it is suggested that you pull the cord. If you don't pull the cord, you're going to go splatting to the earth, right? So that that suggestion becomes a must at one point or another. So one of the things that um, I do uh, with people that are struggling is address that immediately as soon as they put down the food. You're going to deal with the mental obsession. Here are some practical suggestions that I'm going to give you. You're going to not do this alone. As soon as you have that thought process, this great idea, um, call someone. You know, either call me or call someone else in program that is recovered, you know, not just anyone, because you don't want to call the person that's drowning like you are, because you're both going to drown. Call a recovered person, someone that's been through the process and can lift you out of that morass, you know, so, um, you know, and then there's other suggestions, talk back to the food, you know, talk back to your disease, know it, uh, saturate yourself in this program, saturate yourself in the 12 steps, meaning absorb yourself, Immerse yourself. Uh, change the way you think around the food. One of the things my sponsor told me um, initially in recovery is don't have your food being your friend. 
you know, if you know that food is killing you, why are you going to entertain that food in your mind and think that you're going to be able to eat it and control it? You know, so I got, I had to start thinking, this is not my friend. This food will kill me. This food will uh, create, you know, if it Do you cut out on us? All right. We will go to our final question now. Thank you, Do and all. Uh, we'll go to our final question from Nan Kay. Hi, this is Nan Kay from Michigan. This is for John. John, would you expound some more on your statement, fight for your right to be uncomfortable? Sure, it's actually Irish statement, but I'll I'll explain what I mean by it. Um, that that our choice is to be uncomfortable and to move through things, and when we move through things, we grow, as opposed to not wanting to be uncomfortable and eat, and getting into the food as the alternative to not feeling uncomfortable. That you know, at the end of the day, if 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 I don't deal with it, whatever this problem is, you know, I mean, there's this whole saying in, in like couples thing of, of if you end up uh, hitting something with a character thing and you break up with the person, you're going to end up dealing with it in the next relationship. Well, it's the same here as that if I don't work on this stuff, if I don't get uncomfortable, I'm not going to grow. And if I don't grow, I'm, I'm still going to be, and let's say I go get into the food, you know, I've, I've said to people who are, who are struggling, I said, I got taught early on in my other program, think it through, think the first drink through, think the first bite through, where does it go? It, you know, you're dealing with maybe the person's absent, they're dealing with something really tough right now. Um, if they go eat, they eat, they go out, they have a slip, they come back, they eventually get absent again, and eventually they're going to hit this problem again. And again, like I said in my thing, what are you going to do? Keep going around and around? The way, the way you get better is to get through it. And usually for most of us, the only way we are willing to get, you know, to deal with these things is is to get uncomfortable enough to say, okay. And then the other thing is absence has to be the most important thing. Otherwise, you that will be your, your default mechanism, you know. If food's an option, it'll always be the only option. But then if you don't, you can work through it, grow through it, and chances are you won't have to go around that track again. You may have to go around others, but you won't have to go through that specific thing again, you know. And to me, that's the key is to be willing to deal with it. And, and I got taught a long time ago, actually from an outside thing, that my emotions won't kill me. There's a part of me that when they come up, oh, my God, oh, my God, and I can look and, you know, the old it's hysterical, it's historical thing, that this goes back to my childhood. It goes back to a crazy childhood where emotions were overwhelming and they were hugely bigger than me. Well, I'm an adult now, and my emotions are, can be a little big, but they're not bigger than me, and they're not bigger than my higher power either. And, and when I'm stuck, I sort of try and step back and say, okay, God, help me with this one. I'm not doing this alone, and, and it usually helps. I hope that helps. Thank you. Thanks, Nan Kay. Thanks to everyone who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you to our three panelists. You were so very helpful this morning. John Kay, Penny L.C., Duell, fabulous. Thank you for bringing the chapter to life with such clarity and experience. 
We're going to close now from page 164. You'll find it in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.